0: And Boris actually knows this stuff too. He's like, I was like, oh, I wonder if he's actually. Gonna-. He was just bullshitting him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he knows about the gladiator days and everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, where do we want to go? Welcome back to the Forty K Fireside Podcast. We are joined here today with a good friend of ours, uh, Boris Mitchev, who owns the Bad Moon Cafe in London, which is basically the premier uh, wargaming cafe in London, or if you just want to go get a cocktail or. Coffee, maybe work there in the day like I've done from time to time. Uh, it's a great place to go there. Uh, he's obviously our teammate as well. And uh, we thought we'd bring him on today to talk about a couple of things because we love having guests on. Uh, in terms of housekeeping, we think that we are going to be recording an episode in a couple of days' time to talk about the international team tournament, which all three of us are participating in in the same team. Uh, and then we might do a special episode with our whole team on Saturday night, perhaps, which would be really cool to recap uh, day one. So that'll be. What you can look forward to in the next couple of weeks, but I'll pass it over to Vic to introduce you about what we're going to be talking today.
1: All right. Awesome. So a little bit of background. Um, uh, most of you do know about our team, but we play for a team called Dicetown. There's 10 members and Boris is one of the members of Dicetown. And um, Boris exemplifies one of the things which we've noticed a lot over the last few years, which is that people in Competitive 40k jump in and out of the game. And Boris is going through a phase where he's coming back into the game. And I just want to give a little introduction before he starts to, to kind of talk about things and um boris played a lot of competitive 40k between the period of 2019 and 2021 getting to the lvo top eight getting to the lgt finals where he came second and winning a number of gts along the way including the gibraltar gt now at that time gts of kind of 80 to 100 people are absolutely huge events so uh, boris was a very accomplished 40k player um slipped a little bit out of 40k and boris why don't you introduce yourself welcome to the podcast
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure.
1: Awesome. So, Boris, just want to start off getting a bit more information from you about that period when you were playing 40k and kind of what you got up to.
2: So, I, I guess I'm a bit of an exception because I, I'm quite a late bloomer. I think most people that, that play 40k um, did at least some when they were a kid and maybe they came out of it and they came back later on. Mm-hmm. I only really got into 40k with the start of eighth edition so very recently. So so growing up as a kid I you I know mean, I had no idea what you know Warhammer is and I sort of knew from the video games um you know Dawn of War and others but never with the miniatures. So just as eighth edition was coming out which was I guess 2017 maybe 18 um I had a good friend from high school come to visit London and he took me to the Games Workshop store in Tottenham Court Road, <laughs> and my mind was blown. I mean, you know, I was I don't know 35 at the time, which probably tells my <laughs> age. But you know, for a 35 year old to, to walk into a toy store and be like, "Oh my gosh, what is this? Like, how do you, how do I do this?" Yeah. And then, uh, and then I immediately got hooked. So I, I came into it pretty late, but almost immediately, I got attracted to going to tournaments and events. Mm-hmm. Um. And so you know, the first tournament I ever went to was LVO, which tells you how <laughs> tells you like how uh, how intense I get when I get into something. And you know, first thing is I go to LVO, and the second thing is I open up a, a gaming store, <laughs> a gaming <laughs> store. So you could say I sort of jumped into it, uh, you know, into the deep right away.
0: Yeah, yeah, awesome. And I think. Um... What was so? What was the? I guess we'll cover a lot of things here, but I think maybe give us a bit of context. What are the? What was the scene like in Eighth in Edition when you started playing?
2: So when I started, you know, when I literally picked up my first start collecting box and started, you know, googling how do I glue these things together, and I kid you not, um, I, you know, I was like, what do I need glue? Or um <laughs> yeah. I started sort of like, you know, looking for podcasts. Mm-hmm. And other, you know, media to, to kind of get up to speed with the game, and and nowadays obviously, you know, what you guys do and what others do, there's just so much good content out there that can, you know, tell people about the the tournament side of, of 40k and how to get into it, what to expect. At the time, there was there was nothing. I mean, there was one podcast, which is how I got into 40k, which was called The Best General. And oh it yes. Was a, By this guy, Adam Abramowitz, which, you know, you guys may or may not have heard of. But he was basically he created a podcast about going from sort of a casual hobby focused 40K player to attempting to win a grand tournament. And his goal was to win Warzone Atlanta, which is a longstanding running sort of grand tournament in the U.S. And I listened to it every week and it was so good. And he described his journey. He had guests on the show to sort of help him prepare and go through the whole process. And as I was building my start, collecting orcs, you know, and doing my first painting, and he's going through the process, I got hooked. And uh, one of the, my favorite things is I actually got to play Adam at round five at the LVO. Awesome. We were both four and and it was the you know it was the best game. And I told him like you're the reason why I'm here. You know, your podcast. So, uh, you know, at the time there was no coaching, there was no podcast. And and we're talking only about, you know, five years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. So it's not like eons ago. It just goes to show you the growth that sort of the content creation and tournament side of things has really gone through in the last few years.
1: So... Boris, I noticed that the, the timing, and I didn't actually realize this, that we pretty much started playing 40K at exactly the same time with exactly the same kind of story, just walking into a game store. And um, I also used to listen to the best general every single time. Oh, that's awesome. Out. That's Crazy. <laughs> awesome. And uh, actually, uh, I don't know if you remember, the key source of information at that time were this thing called Forums, mm-hmm. um, Daka Daka and Bolton yes. Chainsword. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> yeah, yeah, um, things
0: have changed.
1: Gosh. By the way, it's
2: not. It's only like five years ago. This is what's crazy. crazy. It's
0: developed yeah. so much. I, I, even in the last year, the community has absolutely exploded as well. I could, I know, I notice a remarkable difference between this time last year, or you know, from LVO to LVO, especially in the UK, especially on the content, uh, content front, It's changed a lot as well. So, Boris, I remember when I first started playing. Actually, uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm the odd one out here now. When when I first started playing, you and I, uh, while I was playing a lot on TTS it was lockdown. And, you know, I went to my first tournament uh, and I played Dan Bates round one. Many Chima round two. Uh, and then I played uh, another good player. And then I played Vic, I think round four or five. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I I was just like, with my ad, Vic, I was like, yeah, my list is so good. Like I'm going to smash everyone. And I got completely destroyed uh, as Vic and I have already detailed once. <laughs> um, and then, so I kind of went to the first tournament and I thought, you know, oh, this is really interesting, but uh, I really fell in love with the competitive side of the game. I thought it was such a deep game. And then uh, funnily enough, like we started playing, right? Because, we were at Bad Moon Cafe and um, we started playing it. And I was like, oh, I remember you beat me once as well uh, at, at another kind of well, kind of load up tournament. Uh, and I was like, man, this guy seems really good. Like this guy just crushed me with his like Marines or like this guy's, you know, and I kind of knew like, oh, this guy's really good. And I was kind of, ooh, I really wanted to get games against you and everything like that. And at the time for me, it was like such a drive for 40K. I've never had that kind of period where I've had a lull so far, but I know a lot of people do go through that. And I think, kind of dipping in and out of 40k, especially for people on our team, has been um, kind of a very common theme. And throughout everyone in the world, they go through parts of where they really enjoy the game. They're super into it. And maybe that's because an army that they like has gotten substantially better, or it's maybe it's because a new codex has dropped, or um, or they're just you know going through a part in their life where they've got more time and, um, and and a social network to play in 40k. So why don't you take us through? I guess what would be a good part is when you started going dropping out of 40k what, relative to ninth edition, eighth edition. Like where did that happen, and kind of what were some of the key reasons that you went um, kind of lost a kind of interest or a competitive edge in 40k? So I would say.
2: Yeah. I, I, I mean, different people, you know, fall in and out for different reasons. I think the the main thing for me has been sort of quote unquote real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got three kids under the age of five <laughs> and I got two businesses, two jobs, if you will. And so life has just been, you know, I've always wanted to do this thing, but, but go back and look at, you know, the top five, ten players in the world every year. You know, how many of them have kids? Mm -hmm. It'll be an interesting social experiment. And I know nowadays, you know, some of the top players, you know, have kids and and so forth. But it's very hard, I find it, with young kids to, you know, to maintain a sort of, you know, a regular competitive 40K drive. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you and Vic did last year, and I was sort of, you know, vicariously living through you guys, is, I mean, you must have each gone to, you know a dozen if not more tournaments you know more than one a month and practicing in between and reading up and staying up to date with podcasts and you know releases and army crafting and you know i just you know as as i went from one kid to two kids to three kids to two jobs i just you know there was there's just no capacity in in my days to, to do all of that so for me the main reason has been just you know life has gotten in the way i keep making this joke you know when my kids go to college i'll be back <laughs> in circuit, you know in, in 15 years as the, oldest, as the oldest you know itc um but you know i i don't tend to come in and out of the game based on factions being strong or weak you know as, as you know like when i come back i i you know i wouldn't play for like eight or nine months i'll pick up one of the armies that I have, I'll play like 10 games in a week and then I'll go yeah. to a tournament and, you know, hope to do well. Um, you know, my, my kids are now getting sort of to an age where, you know, I'll allow myself maybe a couple of events a year. Like I'll go to the Games Workshop GTs mm-hmm. that have now started. I love the team event, uh, but, but you know, I can't really sort of compete in the true sense of the word as, as you know, as I did when, you know, before I had kids or when life was a little bit more normal
1: so that's Mm -hmm. uh, that's really interesting way of putting it so it's not really the balance of the game that put you off it and made you step out it was purely a time constraint thing and the fact that if you did want to compete you wouldn't be able to compete at the level you wanted to does that sound
2: about right yeah exactly i mean we Dave and i have talked about this a lot but you know i've i've long ago come to terms with the fact that you know 40k isn't A perfect competitive discipline there's just no ifs and no buts about that like it's sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse but when you compare it to traditional sports or esports or other competitive disciplines clearly 40k is significantly flawed in you know it's not ever designed as a, as a pure competitive system. And I've mm-hmm. come to terms with that and I'm okay with that. And what that means is that like sometimes certain armies are much stronger than others and sometimes certain units are much stronger. Mm-hmm. And obviously to compete at the top level, there's an element of like, can I have 20 Scarab Code Terminators, 15 Flamers and three characters <laughs> next weekend? <laughs> and, um, and obviously that is a time commitment in and of itself. Uh, you guys know that I'm quite, serious about my hobby and my painting and I love reading the books. And so for me, you know, there's just certain, uh, you know, certain elements of the, of the meta chase that I haven't like ever signed up for. And I never, I've never judged anyone for doing it. I I fully respect that, but it hasn't always been for me. So I've done well when like my armies that I have are strong. Mm -hmm. I feel confident that I can, you know, play 10 games in a week, go for a weekend and actually compete if my armies. It's kind of up there, but I certainly don't have the you know the time to to do what I describe
0: as competing. Yeah, and I think you know that that uh, kind of problem of people who and I think Vic and I are obviously um, pro- me more so than Vic um, f- for lack of health um, <laughs> in terms of uh, what I think is it is some people only like to compete at their absolute best, and they like to compete and. Like to win, of course. Um, And I think obviously, you know, you kind of fall into that camp as well. If you can't put your best foot forward and be at the point where you can be playing at your apex and winning and podiuming, then kind of what's the point, so to say? And I know I think, I think Vic, you got a bit more healthier mentality than I do um, in that. But I've kind of come to that realization recently as well is that you don't actually have to win anything. Like, I don't feel like I necessarily have to prove anything anymore per se which has led me to kind of play a little bit easier and enjoy the game in different um, aspects but where i'm going with this is that i noticed that when you kind of um when you definitely had uh had your kids and and you know especially with your third uh your latest uh, your third son right well not third yes. son but, mm-hmm. but your latest uh, child your son is that you actually got mega big into the hobby side of things now i know you've been into the kind of hobby and the law side of things but guys boris just started dropping like
2: insanely (laughs) good
0: painting like photos and like dioramas and like Lord (laughs) of the Rings stuff and like fantasy stuff and like everything in our chat and like for example you know Boris just posted some uh, some world eaters rhinos recently that he's been doing and they're like absolutely mint crisp um like Boris is like yeah I want to go for like best painted and all this stuff which obviously (laughs) takes a huge amount of hobby time but I guess what like like what's the difference between competing and like just um painting to like you know not painting as competing but you know painting to where well, you want to paint your best right like there's some similarities there between competing and wanting to paint your best and have
2: your yeah best, absolutely right? it's just it's 100 driven by the social uh and time availability like i do all my painting in the evenings when my kids like i'll put my kids to bed my mm-hmm. wife likes to go to sleep early it's like between the hours of like 10 and midnight i'll just mm-hmm. sit and paint a lot of nights um yeah same on weekends, evenings, but the, you know, the thing about tournaments is like you're gone the whole weekend. Mm. There is no world in which I can leave my wife with three kids for the weekend multiple times a year or a month. It's just not something that, you know, At the whereas, you know, painting, you can sort of sneak out a couple hours in the evening. Um, you know, kids are watching TV. You can, you know, you can get some painting done. So it's a little bit more, well, it's a lot more conducive to, you know, the the family aspects and, you know, because we all love the hobby and we're so addicted to it you know when when you can't go to tournaments you you know for me the answer has been i you know i do more painting yeah yeah
1: you know um i actually i saw in person the point when boris stepped out of 40k Ah. it was it was at the beachhead brawl which is in the south part of england Boris. The entire day had been complaining, saying, like, I feel like such a bad husband. I'm not with my kids. Why am I here playing with toy soldiers? And at the end of the day, he played a game and he skipped the second day and just went back home to his family. Mm-hmm. And I think you stepped out of 40K immediately after that, didn't you? Yeah,
2: that that was it. That was the last. And and it, the story is even better than that, because I, you know, I had painted this beautiful GSC army and I was so excited and I didn't play any games before the tournament because obviously I didn't have any time and I turned up and it was the first ever games I ever played with GSC but I was very happy with how I painted him. I won my first game. I won my second game. And I'm sort of feeling guilty, uh, calling my wife and texting my wife, but because I'm winning, it's sort of like, wow, you know, maybe I'm just. <laughs> another. And then round Still three, <laughs> and <laughs> then round three, I get matched up into Vic, and it was Tao versus Jitsu, oh. which. <laughs> You know, I think of all the games. Well, okay. that's not true. There's been some other games, but like of all the games where I was just like, I just can't win this. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'm playing probably the best player in the UK. Um, this is when Tau was just released. Yeah, and they yeah. were like mega strong, and I'm playing an army that like is minus three to charge them every time, gets shot off the board, and you know, <laughs> I think they slapped me in like half an hour, and then I thought, well, you know, my friend who's who my partner, at the Batman, I was like, we're going home. <laughs> not only am i abandoning my family but i'm getting slapped <laughs> so, <laughs> let's go but to, so bring in
0: some, to bring in some positivity like i guess i think a lot of people would resonate with this you know Vic and i's you know despite not having families like i think every 40k pusher i think there's a good description of it pusher is pushing competitively runs into this problem of you know realistically speaking like this takes up a lot of time you know mm-hmm. what were, were there were there any like tips that you think um would help someone like maybe say they're in the same position as you and a time constrained or what like that like maybe i don't know if you got any advice that you would say to keep them in the game and still still get them interested and still kind of enjoying the tournaments and this and very much the social side of 40k
2: yeah i would i would say um team events my number one advice would be there's more for years and years and years the only team event was sort of the etc WTC, kind of this sort of semi-obscure you know, world championship that you only could read about in some like dark web forums, and it was you know, no one knew about it, but there was sort of like a team England, and everyone said it's the best thing. But, but over time, you know, there's more and more team events, and it's just, I just like if you can only do one or two events a year, I would greatly encourage people to you know, in the UK now, we're going to have at least two or three pretty large team events mm-hmm. and just go in with your buddies and where you, when you're not going, like if you only have one or two armies and they're done, you know, they're not the best of the time, but you sort of still want to compete like the team format offers such a good uh, just environment for you to go there and I love playing Jokari and I'll bring my Jokari and is a part of a five-man team yeah, at any given time your one or two armies are probably going to be very viable, so it offers a great uh, sort of middle ground of you can still compete, you can still enjoy the social aspect, and just through the pairing system in a team event, you you know even if you lose, but you score a few more points than you thought you would, you're helping the team. So it, it puts competitive 40k in a completely different light, and I mm-hmm. I love that. I mean so much to the last time I played 40k was this time yeah, last it year at the ITT. Yeah. And exactly. you know, twelve months later here I am again. So So yeah, just just, just for listeners, this
1: uh this episode is being recorded before the international team tournament, which all three of us are playing in the same team. And it's also recorded before Dave, our captain, has thrown Boris under the bus for six rounds in a row.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but you so. know what? But you know what? I got world eaters. And <laughs> when you have world eaters, you cannot not have a good time. <laughs>
0: You, you're getting shot off the board you're getting points you know you're killing some things you're getting points like oh, you know as it's long as it's the blood perfect, on the battlefield
2: exactly it's the perfect like i'm killing you and you're killing me and we're both having time yeah, yeah. we're both scoring points I,
1: I mean we've got to bring it back to something more positive now you've just mentioned the world eaters and kind of things have been rekindled for you you we have our dice down whatsapp group and Boris's activity in that group has been <laughs> phenomenal over the past month or so. W- what's kind of brought on this resurgence of interest in the game?
2: So I'm a big um, Horus Heresy nerd. Uh, mm. You know, I've read all the novels. I love that part of the 40k, well, I guess the Warhammer lore. And over time, the world leaders have become my favorite legion from the uh, heresy area, so I started, you know, as the Sons of Horus fanboy, and then Thousand Sons, and then, you know, the more and more books I read, and especially now, into the Siege of Thera, I just love the World Eaters, mm-hmm. I don't like 40k World Eaters, but the 30k World Eaters, and their story, and, you know, Angron is by far, the coolest Primark, and so, when they announced, that the World Eaters code is coming out, I was just so, pumped, and initially, pumped. you know, it was only ever going to be, like a hobby project, just, you know, paint it up, and, you know, maybe play a couple of games in the weekend with buddies but because it's sort of the team tournament was around the corner and based on the initial sort of leaks and previews and stuff i was like this looks pretty good yeah um and so it it sort of everything fell into place where you know the team tournament was coming you know my favorite legion was getting a new book the rules seem pretty good the models are epic so like everything sort of came together so i'm like okay i'm back for two weeks <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true and um actually that just segues well because we were going to cover the world eaters in this episode actually and i thought who better to get than boris on here and just as a, a preface boris has already smashed me uh in a practice game and bad <laughs> cafe on a on a friday afternoon <laughs> so world eaters they're not bad they're not bad but i'm going to come at it from the perspective of i still don't know exactly what your army does because that's usually how i played most of my games um,
2: <laughs>
0: um so world eaters, what's that at first, okay, Boris, you said, you know, I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna call you out here a little bit. You said, Oh, you know, I'm all I was always a world eaters fan. Just when they happened to be strong, you know, but you did drop some some thirty K lore, some forty K law, some Horus Heresy law in there. So what what actually is it about world eaters that got you excited? <laughs>
2: Uh, well, from, you know, like everyone who, you know, gravitates to army, you've always liked them since you were a kid. That's sort of the, you know, that's the rule of, you know, um, but no, joking aside, I, um, this from a lore perspective, the story of Angron, I find the most, um, I guess, compelling Mm -hmm. stories of all the Primarchs. And initially like the world leaders in 40k have this, kind of people have this misconception that they're this sort of blood crazed, you know, corn possessed, mindless freaks that just wanna you know but in thirty K obviously they're a lot different, it's before they, you know, go through that transformation. And you you know, their story about the butcher's nails and Angron's, you know, life as a slave and it, it, the the tribulations that they go through is just a very compelling sort of mm-hmm. sci fi narrative. Um from a gaming perspective, you know, when the rules started being released I I sort of like, you know, now that I'm almost 40 and have limited time to to study the game and play, I love that the rule set is very simplified, Mm. but it's deep enough to where if you master the army with a relatively simple rule set, you can actually do some pretty amazing things on the tabletop. Mm-hmm. and that really really appealed to me where i get lost is like the admech codex where there's like 76 <laughs> command phase buff and 12 named characters that each gives a buff and that i sort of like i can't compute. <laughs> those are like, dave zombies yeah. <laughs> command phase is 90 percent of his game <laughs> <laughs> yeah, IQ take, phase. world, world eater's command phase nothing world yeah. eater's psychic phase nothing were you a shooting phase <laughs> no. that's my kind of army <laughs> um, so I mean, let's to the
0: to the listener out there if you are interested if that if that ticks all your boxes which would be one box because you like the mealy phase and, and you like things dying and you like to charge people then uh then stick around we're going to cut it to i'm going to i'm going to segue us we're going oh, you are to you going to segue it there for we me. go part two where we're going to catch up Just with music. boris He's going to talk us all about world eaters. If you want to check him out, maybe get into them and what they bring to the team environment. So we'll catch you right after this.
1: Okay, so we're back with uh, with a bit more World Eaters chat because we want to want to chat with Boris, not only a little bit more about the army, but also about where it fits into the team format. So, uh, Boris, you mentioned that World Eaters are a surprisingly non-one-dimensional faction in terms of their lore. Now, the way you described World Eaters at the end of the last section was fairly one-dimensional, but is it the same kind of thing? Are they also more complex than they appear? Do they have more value than they appear?
2: I mean, fundamentally, they are what, you know, people refer to as a one-phase army, right? Mm -hmm. All they do is charge and combat, right? Uh, And and traditionally in 40K, it's rare that monophase armies do well. You know, there's been some shooting armies that do well uh, over time, but... Generally, the armies that, that have tended to do wells have been armies that you know do multiple things in multiple phases of the game. So inherently, world eaters are limited in that sense, and it's very hard to balance a rule set in 40k that only does one thing, hmm. right? Um, and so I think that puts like a b- big asterisk to them in that they are monophase and all they do is just punch. But I think GameStorks have done such a clever design of their rule set and their secondary missions in this current uh, arcs of omen season that it doesn't feel like you are as hamstrung by being a monophase army as you might be otherwise i mean we're coming off you know blood angels winning mm-hmm. lvo yeah. so you know maybe there are combat armies that that can do well in a in a specific event but i think to answer your question they are straightforward in that they have only, you know, five or six stratagems, only one warlord trade, really one relic sort of thing and so, and you know, four data sheets. Hmm. So in that sense, it's a very compact rule set and then it's 100% what do you do with that on the table? And I have now maybe 10 games with them and it's, you know, as a classic combat army, you know, it's mastering the movement phase and mastering the combat phase is just so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it really and... is the
0: deepest part of 40k to, 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 in all honesty, right? The combat phase and the move. Well, obviously, the movement phase because it determines <laughs> where your army is going to be, but you know, the combat phase really allows for the most amount of player expression and minutiae, I think, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Hmm. So, I think
0: one of the things that I think most people typically look at when they think of is this army going to be powerful or not. Uh for me personally it's uh if you were only to pick one thing, I'd have to say it's secondaries, right? I think we've seen over the past year a couple of armies that have done particularly well simply because their secondaries have been uh pretty busted. So obviously we all know Necrons. Uh Thousand Suns was a little bit like that as well, you know, access to very strong secondaries. Uh and then we had the counterpoint where we had tyranids, uh which had bad secondaries but had really good data sheets so there's kind of two contrasts i think two relative themes to the uh the game in a, in a lot of sense and then we've also had tau who have had kind of good secondaries and that when and we're also kind of a mono-ish phase uh, army as well so why don't you run us through the secondaries and why you think they're why you think they're good what, what are the strengths there
2: so when the arcs of omen gt book came out i mean you guys know this because i said it only about a hundred times in the chat <laughs> <laughs> when the book first came out i was like this is 45 out of 45 every single game mm-hmm. you know i read him like five times and at the time, we didn't really know what Blood Tide Points mean, So the third secondary, we we couldn't really tell how good it is. But once the Codex came, I was like, yeah, this is crazy. There's no other faction. And, you know, having played, as I said, about 10 games with them now is my opinion has changed a bit. I still think they have the best secondaries in the game as a suite of like three faction-specific secondaries. Mm-hmm. They're incredible. They can also do some of the generic secondaries uh, especially the kill secondaries if your opponent gives it up very well as well. Mm-hmm. It's not 45 out of 45 every game, but I haven't had any games, even the games where I've lost with them, uh, where I've scored less than like 40, yeah, maybe which 39. Nice, um,
0: yeah, Which is a, a super strong game for going into a game, right? You're like, well, I'm already going to score like 75 points. So that's where the bar is, right? You need to meet me at 75.
2: Yeah, and, and our UK on our UKTC terrain, which is what you know everyone's playing nowadays here, um you could you know, the it's very hard to deny World Eater's player primary points. It's I mean we should have started with that, but World Eaters is the kind of army that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on your opponent. Literally turn one, you're in their deployment zone with six hundred points of combat. Turn two, you're in their deployment zone with 800 points of combat, okay? Mm-hmm. In, in in most games, you could literally have a single spawn sitting on your back objective scoring <laughs> your primary points because okay. the opponent is like, I literally have this, what is this? In my deployment zone, I'm getting tabled. I need to deal with this. Um, so they're actually very hard to deny primary against, and they themselves are very good at denying primary because you put so much OPSEC, so much, you know, combat on objectives with heroic intervention fights on that so they're a very high scoring army as a result of that really good secondaries can score their own primary and also denied upon a primary as well
0: yeah so you mentioned a couple of the strats there i think stratagems are i think a very uh, initial place that people go to when they look at codexes. They go, Do they have this generic stratagem? Do they have the access to this one? You know, do they fight on death? Do they have heroic? Do they mm-hmm. have advance and charge, right? Which is like probably the biggest one that you look for. Um, what What are the kind of the most out of the 10 games you play? Like, what are the most common strats that you use and which ones you, you really think are the powerhouses?
2: So, unlike other codices, I mean, people are speculating that this is, you know, is this the way forward for GW for codex design? But world leaders, you only get eight stratagems. Well, you get mm-hmm. eight. And then you get another 8 if you play the Army of Renown, um, which is a little bit of a corner case. But you only get 8 stratagems, but 6 of them you use every game. So it's very or, – or, you know, 6 of them you use in 75% of games, I would say. Yeah. So it's, they've gone with a – you know, we're not going to do 3 pages of stratagems, 90% of which you're never going to use. Here's 8 of them, of which 6 are really, really good. Yeah. Um, so the, the ones that I use every game is plus one damage on my eight bound or Terminators, which mm-hmm. is incredible. It takes them from damage two to damage three, which is obviously a, a very powerful breakpoint. Six inch heroic intervention for core units on your eight bound in your and your corn Berserkers. Use it every game or at least the threat of it? Every game comes up. Six is to wound, do additional mortal wounds. You know, when you're throwing so many attacks and you need a few more mortal wounds to sort of guarantee a kill. Or get through a tougher defensive profile you use that fight on death for a core unit use it every single game um and then 3d6 charge drop the lowest for corn berserkers and jackals with an icon Mm -hmm. use that pretty much every single game and then you have a couple of situational ones you know minus one to hit on your rhinos or you know get some blood tight points if you kill the warlord Mm -hmm. but as you can see it's only five or six stratagems but you either use them every game, or the threat of your ability to use them kind of help helps dictate play. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think you had the na- um, nail on the head where a lot of codexes these days have probably fifty percent of their stratagems are very niche and or not really used. And correct me if I'm wrong, but world leaders don't really have access to multiple relics or warlord traits. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, you only get the one of each. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, yeah. Which yeah. is typically in
0: Codexes these days. That's also built into their Stratagem pages, and it takes up like four Stratagems as well, right?
2: But you also you can only you know not only do you ta- you can only take one of each, but you can only choose from three Warlord Treasures and three Relics. So ah. you're limited both in your you know ability to take them and you know the the field from which you can take them. So it's you know as I said, it's very streamlined.
0: Mm. Makes you wonder if this is the kind of inclination of 10th Edition coming in where Codexes get smaller. More compact, and their release dates are potentially sped up, and and what like that. They they make the cycle faster or something, right? I, I can't help but feel, Boris,
1: listening to everything you've just said there, a one phase army that applies massive pressure and has very good secondary scoring it sounds awfully like a teams list to me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think for for the teams teams format? I mean, we're playing fives, but maybe it could be applied to eights as well. How how do you think World Eaters fits into that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I you guys would know better than me, but I cannot think of another army that I've ever played with or played against where you actively score points by dying you know it's it's, it's, (laughs) honestly in the first few games that i played i would like hide my spawn you know i just it just used to like okay i can tuck in the spawn behind this ruin and my farm berserkers (laughs) and then by game two three four five i would literally like take the spawn put it at the very front of the objective and say please shoot this (laughs) this is three points and so as a result in most matchups you can guarantee that the World Eater's player isn't going to get 20 old or 15-5, you know, or 13 70 even, and no matter how bad it gets. Obviously, there's some really hard matchups that we can go into, but in most matchups, you can reliably say we can get 10 points here or nine points here, which mm-hmm. is, you know, for, for a captain and someone doing the, the, the pairings, just to know that, like, in eight out of these 10 matchups, I can throw the World leaders players and they're just going to score points. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a great asset to have. I, I also Boris. think
1: there's another little bit of special power here that we have in having you here with us in this team tournament, Boris. And um, we did a previous interview with a, a player called Anthony Vanella, um, like top 10 IDC, brilliant player. And he was talking about what he felt about UK players and their potential weaknesses And one of the weaknesses he mentioned was that the players in the UK, especially the top good players, are much less able to deal with severe pressure being applied on them. Um, And I don't know if that's because of our uh, terrain format always being so balanced that, you know, if you do put your whole army in someone's face, which is very much sounds like how world eaters are going to do it. Hopefully, you know, we have a chance of more blowout games, which is very, very powerful in fives.
2: Yeah. I mean, a few of the, you know, one practice games so far, and I've had, I would say I've had practice games against Malik, Dave, George. Like, I've had practice games against good players playing top lists, and you can have, you know, you can have blowout games. I mean, in some of these matchups, if you go first, and I know. Like going first used to be this sort of like horrible thing back in the day where like we had no terrain and we had gun lines. And going first meant like, okay, I'm just going to get shot off the board. Hmm. But going first with rodeers you you know, your opponent asks you and you explain to them that, okay, in the corners deployment maps, I will be at the end of my movement phase on your home objective with 600 points of combat, okay? That's where my <laughs> army will end up before I declare my charges. Okay, these two units will move 22, and that one unit is moved 24 inches. And you point to them exactly <laughs> where you're going to end your movement, and you put like a dice there. Okay, <laughs> and then you watch them deploy their army. Right, and they're like, Well, I could go all the way back in the corner, and then I'll score no points, or I can front line, and then on a 50 50, maybe I just get 20 old. So it does play. You know, what I found with the pregame move, Warlord Trade, which is, you know, kind of the the only way to really play them, at least for now, um, I don't turn one charge, you know, maybe I turn one charge half the time I go first, mm-hmm. um, but the threat of it, right, and how your opponent deploys, you just, okay, you want to go in the back corner, I'll take my first turn and I'll take the entire midboard, okay, with my whole army, and then guess what, turn two, <laughs> you know, the pain train's coming. Yeah. Or even turn three if
0: they, they can't come out far enough, right? And then it's just like, well, you have to table me in two turns now and catch up exactly. in the game, which is a tough spot to be in, right?
2: Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Like, I think it, it is kind of reminiscent to um, Necrons, but I thought it just seemed very similar to Blood Angels. Obviously, you have the pregame move with Death Company and they you get points when they die and it's just killing stuff and whatnot like that, right? So that, to me, was the yeah. direct similarity. I, think, and I think, think
2: the difference with the Death Company was you could only ever do it on one unit, right? If mm, I if yeah. I am not mistaken, and so, you know, one unit of that company can do a lot of damage, but you could sort of, you, you know, you could sort of deal with that a little bit. Whereas when you have five or six eight bound, five or six eight bound, and the and the Lord on the flying magical unicorn juggernaut all hitting you, like <laughs> the the damage potential is just. When I played against one of our teammates um, playing knights on Dawn of War, and he backlined his army. I killed five knights, turn one, five baby knights, oh turn God, one, it? and touched the other two in yeah, turn right. one on Dawn of War. And, you know, it's, you know, five five death companies in doing that, right?
0: Yeah. And so I, I agree with Vic, actually, in that it strikes me that I mean, that she has, it has the potential for a high upswing and your opponent does need to play tight, especially in the early turns in the game. Because um, once the early turns are over, you can sort of map out the movement for world Eaters. You know, move blocking is very strong against them. Um, but that potential for a turn one blowout if they make a mistake is pretty big and in a team tournament format where you get put right on the back foot on turn one in a matchup maybe you should be drawing or winning then it kind of throws the whole it throws your whole game plan completely out the window because all of a sudden you're thinking actually how do I salvage this to be a a, an 8-12 instead of a what I thought was going to be a 11-9 or something like that right so huge potential um threat for a big differential which and a five-man tournament where well, all the armies are quite close, I think, is potentially a, uh, a powerful um, weapon in your arsenal.
2: So Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, you know, top players all know how to screen, right? Like I got the servitor unit here in my book corner and it's nine inches and I got these infiltrators here and you can't drop in. But, you know, the world leader's pregame move is, I'm moving 22 inches and you can't stop me because I can end within nine. Um <laughs> And so, of course, there's some armies that can just like string out some, you know, cheap string out, you know, 20 guardsmen. And then the only thing you can hit is guardsmen and everything else there's three inches back. So you can't be touched after that or you can put the scarabs. There's, of course, some armies that could just put cheap bodies in the way and be a speed bump. But so many of the armies in the game right now just don't have that, right? Uh, In turn one, you're hitting lemon Russes. In turn one, you're hitting you know, crisis units in turn one, you're hitting... Or or they're in their back corner, you know, (laughs) and then they're not scoring. Yeah. So what is? So,
0: I mean, we've been singing the praises for a lot of positivities of this army, but what are some of the drawbacks? I think going second seems to be quite a, you know, potentially bad spot, right? Like, because you're a melee combat army, can you get out onto the staging positions when your opponent's already had a turn and will have another turn before they potentially shoot or engage you, right?
2: Yeah, so the worst-case scenario... Is you go second into a very fast, very killy army hmm. that that can just get angles in you and just blow you off the board. So you know some of these Raven Wing armies, even the Votan bikes, like some, some of the lists in the ITT are 18 Votan bikes. Yeah. Um, if you go second and each one of them pre games 12 inches and then they move 12 inches in their movement phase, they'll get angles in your army unless you've put everything behind your corner L, at which point you've lost the game. Yeah. And there's no coming back from that. It, it is, at that stage, you know, terminal. They'll kill, you know, they'll kill three, four, five hundred points of your army in for shooting phase. Because yeah. world leaders are not resilient. They're, like, a little bit resilient so they're not like glass cannons you know they have good toughness you know multiple like wounds an invulnerable save
0: yeah they're like toughness five marines that have like an in save like five up or six up and access to maybe a film no pain
2: exactly exactly so they're a little bit tough but for where the game is as far as like killing potential right now with some of these armies hmm. they are not resilient so going second even on a which is a very good you know, terrain set for melee armies, especially on some of the missions, going second into a fast shooting army is just terminal. The other kind of impossible matchup is if you hit a data sheet that you just can't beat in melee, mm. right? Like these bonded knights that are minus one damage, four up in bone, transhuman, <laughs> transhuman, and it's just like, well, I've put my whole army into one of these knights and I don't kill it. Then, you know, you could hit a brick wall with the world leaders where certain. There's not that many of them, but, you know, Dark Angels, Terminators with access to minus one damage and Transhuman and Four pin bones and fill No Pains. If you can't get through them in one activation in melee, you're in trouble.
0: So what I've gathered from the last 10 minutes is we don't put you against Dark Angels, whether it's Bikes or Terminators.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think the other problem with Dark Angels is the worst matchup, I think even more so than it's like this, you know, fast shooting or whatever, if if you're playing an opponent with an elite army that is very resilient and you can't kill the army just stops functioning because mm. the entire codex is built around these blood type points that you generate from dying and killing your opponent they sort of power up your army and they help you score points if nothing's dying <laughs> mm. from the opponent like if they have you know three hectare fortresses and 18 bikes they have six units in total that is a disaster (laughs) even if you go first you know because they could just deploy everything at the back because they're so fast and then even if you reach the midfield in their first turn they just blow you out so like very elite small unit count armies that you can't kill is is you know destroys the secondary scoring game of the Mm. world leaders
0: that's interesting that's interesting so how um question because i genuinely don't know of course is that how how can you play a passive game can you sit around and you know play super cagey and still score like 25 points on your secondaries
2: um one of them you'll score 15 in every game that's the one where you discard the blood type points literally if you put your army on the line and you got table turn one you'll score 15 points (laughs) i'm not exaggerating done you know know, my army generates i think 20 22 blood type points just by me dying and i need to discard uh, nine of those score 15 points. So <laughs> okay. so one of them you score 15 on. The other one requires you to die on objectives and mm-hmm. your opponent to die on objectives. So, you know, that one is usually like a solid 10 or a 12, even if you're getting battered by just putting a unit on objective and dying every turn, you get a point for that. Yeah. Um, and then the third one really requires you to kill the opponent. You get points for killing the opponent. Um you know, okay. could you take something else instead of that, like some of the, you know, generic ones? The army doesn't really do, like, retrieve passive, data. It? Yeah. You could do banners, you know, you could do banners mm-hmm. with this army as well. Um, but it's it's hard to have a truly passive game and score well. You, it does require you to go out, kill, and die. Yeah. yeah. More so than sit behind a wall and score.
1: Okay. Yeah. This is going to be super interesting, and I think you're going to catch people off guard, and I think people are going to have fun playing against you as well. But so that's the other thing: people, you know,
2: people haven't yet had the time to sort of maybe someone heard mm. someone talk about it on a podcast or, or you know, <laughs> watch the bat rap. But like, I mean, Dave it was your first time playing the other day, and you know, everyone else that I played obviously this week in in, in preparing for the event was their first time playing it. And the first time you play it, it's like... It's <laughs> yeah, like is, yeah, there's
0: a lot of stuff that will 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 we'll catch people up. Like, there's a lot of intricacies between do you shoot units on objectives? Do you place your units on objectives? Do you kill stuff? Do you die on objectives? You know, the heroics, the, the pregame moves and stuff like that. Like, It's definitely one of those armies that I feel has the biggest edge when people don't know or haven't practiced against them. And I think there's yep. a few armies that were very good, especially maybe last year, um, all the year before that were very good when people didn't have experience playing with them. And as soon as people played one or two games, their power level drastically dropped. Uh, Grey Knights really stood out for me like that with all the Nemesis Street Knights. I know once people started playing a few games in, they're like, okay, I kind of like, I have kind of worked it out what's going on here now. Had a few like really tricky parts to it as opposed to some armies that just have raw power. And it doesn't really matter if you figure them out. You just kind of, you you, you need to be respected based on um, the, the game plan that you can operate on the board.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, in our game, we had this interaction where I had five <laughs> Berserkers strung between two objectives. And you're like, right, I'm going to shoot them. And I was like, wow here's what happens if you shoot them if you kill them i score four points one for each objective and two blood type points which i'm going to turn into two points so that's four points if you kill them also if you don't kill them with the first activation i'll move d6 and touch your tank which is standing right here right which will deny you shooting anywhere else if you don't kill them i'm going to score eight primary (laughs) and so it was like the army operates in a way where like killing your opponent isn't like always that obvious which plays mind games with people
1: you yeah, know, stuff. yeah, yeah really sure. interesting. And uh, Boris, I just want to bring it back a second to actually like the main topic of our uh, our thing, uh, our podcast. And I mean, we've talked about the world eaters. We have talked about you coming back into 40k. And I just wanted to get your insight into how you feel now that we're going into our your first event since coming back, going to the international team tournament, going with your team. Are you excited? How are you feeling? <laughs>
2: I have to say, I'm uh, I'm generally not a person that gets nervous before like tournaments or forty k games. I, you know, I I tend to perform, you know, perform very well under you know under stress and, and you know pressure. And but I'm like, you know, I was looking at the list today, and I was like. Pfft. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of scary stuff out there, and obviously, I haven't played for a year. I was like, "Am I just gonna get blown out?" Like, in you know, some of these games. So, I'm obviously super excited to hang out with you know, with the team and see everyone else in the community. I mean, we know, you know, I've been out of the game, in and out for you know, a while now. But when I go through the teams, I still know. Maybe I don't know. 30, 40% of the field of people mm-hmm. that are going there. So, you know, that part is great. Obviously, I'm a little bit apprehensive, like, I don't want to let my team down. If you remember last year, I took uh, GSC. And uh, no, oh, yeah, I had yeah, yeah. GSC for the team event. And I felt like similar. I was like, you know, it's kind of a snowflake army. You know, I don't know. Am I going to let the team down? Um, but in my practice games this week, I, you know, I was like, okay, this army has real power and real legs. Like, it's going to, win some games so yeah. i think
0: uh world eaters suits you better than gsc does from an outsider's perspective in terms yeah. of your ability to practice it and go to a tournament i think it's um obviously it's a lot easier to practice world eaters than gsc and take it yes. to the tournament as well right? yeah i, I agree um, i agree i think I you're agree. in a better position than you, than you were last year than you are uh, you're in a better position now right
2: yeah i agree And
1: uh, it's it's outcome independent anyway. We're going there to have a great time and it's going to be a very, very good event. Mm -hmm. We are going to be discussing the International Team Tournament, looking through some of the top teams and lists um, a little bit in more detail in our upcoming podcast episode before the end of the week. So uh, guys, you can tune into that. But I think it's uh, probably the right time for us to say thank you to, to Boris for being an awesome guest and running us through a slightly different topic to what we usually do on the podcast.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Um, as we, as Vic said, we'll be chatting uh, about the team tournament. We're gonna try and get an episode out on. Uh, we'll try and record an episode on Saturday. That'd be really cool. Let us know, uh, maybe in the comments, if you guys don't mind having a bit more of like a raw, uncut uh, version because we could potentially uh, record something on Saturday and then just ha- and then you know just um push it straight. So if that's okay with you guys, let us know what your thoughts are. But uh, yeah, Boris, any uh, any closing messages that you want to say?
2: well no thank you very much for having me you guys have an amazing podcast and it's been really fun this um last season to kind of as i said live vicariously through you and um you know for your success on the on the tournament scene and yeah i'm excited to uh see you guys in person again this weekend and play some 40k
1: cheers boris you are awesome and thank you to everyone who's listened up to this point we'll see you at the fireside next time
0: yeah thank you for listening to the 40k fireside podcast Vic and I hope you've enjoyed listening, and we greatly appreciate any feedback that you can provide after the show.